we have to look at what is truly sustainable in the long term. Today I am honored to be talking to Professor Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin is Professor of Animal Science at Colorado State University. She was diagnosed with autism at an early age and was nonverbal until age four. Due to the gift of a brilliant and visual mind, Professor Temple Grandin has been able to single-handedly raise cattle welfare standards across the US and globally. In 2010, she was listed by Time 100 as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Through intense scrutiny of bovine behavior, she has designed facilities and slaughterhouses that allow cattle to behave naturally without any stress. As she says, nature is cruel, but we don't have to be. Her methods are simple and easy to implement, creating a happier experience for both cattle and cattle handlers and saving time and money in the process. I would like to take this moment to thank Professor Temple Grandin for her life's work Hello, Professor Temple Grandin. You're very welcome to the Nature Magic podcast to speak up for the bovines. Well, it's uh, great to be here. Uh, I've worked in the cattle industry for um, for many years, since the early 70s. I've um, been to many uh, countries all around the world. I've seen all different kinds of cattle raising, uh, Western United States, Southeastern United States, Europe, New Zealand, Ireland. I've seen a lot of the cattle industry. I got interested in cattle because I went to my aunt's ranch when I was 15 years old. And that's where the interest started. Now, I get asked a lot of times about, well, how do animals actually think? And what what helped me to understand cattle and other animals? I'm an extreme visual thinker. Everything I think about is a picture. Uh, You know, when I talked about the cattle in different parts of the world, I started seeing like PowerPoint slides of New Zealand, a Western ranch, slides I'd shown in my talks. So an animal lives in a sensory-based world, a world of sight, smells, touch sensations. They communicate a lot by tone of voice. Um, They can communicate emotion. And yes, animals definitely do have emotion. And there's been a lot of um, questions about um, place of cattle. And some people say, well, they just generate methane and wreck the world. And I've been learning more about um, the way that cattle and other grazing animals can be used to improve soil health, to improve land, something you call regenerative agriculture. And it started out in the U.S. as just a niche uh, market. But then eventually it becomes more mainstream. There are a lot of things that people will say are alternative. One big example I saw last year was using probiotics in the raising of chicken. 15 years ago, people would have gone, oh, stupid, you know, that's not scientific. And then when I went to our very large food show, not this year because COVID canceled it, but the previous year, they had banners for probiotics hanging all over the escalators at the uh, entrance of the trade show. That had become mainstream. And I think the same thing will happen with some of these um, grazing techniques. Um, this works very well in some of the drier rangeland in the US and some of our land like in Missouri. Um, you, you, you take electric fencing, you fence the cattle in tight, make them mow the grass, eat the weeds, and then you move them. Because that's the way the herds of ancient uh, bison grazed. 
And that created some of the finest farmland that we have in the US, in Iowa and Illinois. And another thing that people are getting more and more interested in is uh, cover crops and more rotational um, rotation, using cattle as one of the rotations. We need to be getting the uh, grazing animals back on the land. Also integrating sheep and goats and other animals. Um, another big area right now, which we're very concerned about is fire suppression. Yes, you were showing me your pictures of the fire. It looked like a sunrise outside your door on your phone. Um, and it's actually a very nearby, for well, a forest fire near to you in Colorado. Well, it was a forest fire that lasted two months. Now, we never have even got close to being evacuated, but it was close enough that I started doing Google Earth of the reservoir, which would basically was a barrier between us and, and those fires. And I, I was looking at that enough, of, you know, to be concerned because I took a picture at, at 1230 in midday on the road in front of my house and it looked like this kind of sunset. Well, it wasn't a sunset because it was 1230 in the lunchtime. And actually had little bits of soot coming down and I could see it landing on the cars and landing on my front steps. There was nothing that had any fire in it, but it was close enough that it was a real concern. We lost a lot of houses. There were places in, the, in places where they got burned up. They had to evacuate. This went on for like two months. Terrifying. No, and, and part of the problem was I'm not performing enough fire suppression things. The old dead wood, they're now having people go in and, and take that out. In California, they're finding that animals such as goats can be used to um, uh, eat the underbrush. There's a place for the grazing animal where it can improve the environment. Now, if you use them wrong, cattle wreck the land. Mm -hmm. If you use it right, they can improve the land. And there's a lot of pioneering people now. A lot of it's still considered kind of alternative. But I think in the future, it's going to be like those banners for the probiotic companies. Oh, that just made me chuckle as I went up that escalator. Because 15 years ago, they wouldn't have dreamed of hanging up banners at their trade show about probiotics. The chickens. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, so regenerative agriculture is important for sustainability, really. Absolutely. And, and the other issue, um, I've seen in Ireland, you have a lot of green grass, but it's very wet. And mm -hmm. it's wetter than New Zealand. I've been around in a lot of parts of New Zealand, several uh, several different trips, and the cattle are out year round. They don't have to uh, put them in barns during the winter time because it's not quite as wet. And unfortunately, when I went to some slaughterhouses in Ireland, I saw some of the dirtiest cattle I'd ever seen. Yes, and it had come from inside these barns. And I understand that when you do organic, you you, you have less cattle and you put them on, in barns and you bed them. Now yes. the biggest problem I have seen with a bedded pack is not using enough bedding. To keep your animals clean, you have to put a lot of straw or some other bedding in there to soak up the moisture. And if the bedding is scarce or very expensive, then you don't put enough in there. Now, one of the things I've done in welfare and what's being done, animal welfare all around the world is going what's is using what's called an animal based outcome measure. So the things I would measure on these cattle when you put them in a barn in the wintertime is how dirty they are. Are they getting lame from being on this floor? And are they getting swollen joints? Those are three things that I can measure. And Cabby 
International has just published the uh, third edition of my book, Improving Animal Welfare, a Practical Approach. Improving Animal Welfare, a Practical Approach, published by Kebby. And the new edition just came out December of uh, 2020. It's, a, you know, it's hot off the press. Great. We'll put the link in the show notes uh, with all some of your other books as well. There's one, Animals in Translation, and The Autistic Brain, and you've written a number of important books. Another one is Animals Make Us Human. Ah. I I get asked all the time, well, you know, you care about animals. How can you be involved with slaughterhouses and all this kind of stuff like that? And one of the reasons is when I first started back at the Arizona feed yards and the Arizona ranches, first of all, there were a few people there that really did things right. So handling of cattle was really bad, really rough, but there were some people doing it right. So I saw that as a solvable problem, but an Arizona feed yard actually had very good living conditions. They were clean, they had shade. And I talk about that in the afterward to animals make us human. And I got to thinking if Uh, If back when I started in my 20s, I call it my cattle formative years. If during my cattle formative years, I've been exposed to disgusting mud hole feed yards, maybe my career would have gone a different way. And I was, um, now that I've been doing Zoom conferences, I have some pictures that I show from the 70s of a dip fat system I designed. I never really paid much attention to the pens of cattle in the background, but I've got a nice monitor. And I'm going, you know what? There's half as many cattle in those pens right. as you've got now. So this brings up the whole thing of overcrowding. Now we got more dirt problems on cattle, and this has slowly gotten worse. I have a saying, bad becoming normal. Mm. And this has happened with lame cattle, not just beef cattle, but also dairy cattle too, where lameness gradually got worse for various reasons. And people get so used to seeing lame animals they don't see them anymore. In fact, if they're asked to estimate how many lame cattle they have, three studies have shown they'll underestimate by half. That's scientifically shown. You manage what you measure. So what I think we need to do about the barn issue in Ireland is you're gonna need to measure dirty cattle, lame cattle, and swollen leg joints. Those are your outcome measures. Okay, so that something really needs to be done to the conditions in slatted houses around Ireland. So that is a good solution. Well, I'm going to tell you, you need to be measuring these things. And when it comes to the slaughterhouses, the thing that upsets me the most now is the condition of some of the animals coming in. You might have some old decrepit dairy cows, filthy, dirty beef cattle. i there's lame for different reasons. There's genetics. There's a number of different things that can make them lame. But the whole trend in animal welfare right now, and the OIE also is going to be doing this. Now, COVID totally messed up getting the standards out. But I saw a, a, a review copy of it and going much more towards outcome-based. I won't tell you how to build that house you put those cattle in, but I want them to be clean. I want them not to be lame and then not have swollen joints. Now, obviously they can't be perfect. You're gonna have a few lame cattle, but they, well, it can't be zero. But in dairy cattle, lameness got up to 25% before anybody started doing something about it. What I call bad becoming normal. Bad becoming normal. I was gonna say, what could you suggest for the regular farmer to improve the life of the bovine? Well, the, really the suggestion is you have to measure unless you measure the outcomes 
um, there's no improvement. That's very clear. I'm not going to tell you how much straw or whatever to put in the bedded pack, but they got to stay clean. And yeah. the biggest problem I've seen with bedded pack is not using enough bedding. That uh -huh. is the number one problem because bedding costs money. And I think another thing we've got to do on everything we do in agriculture, if you brought your, your city guests out and you had a wedding, uh, what would your wedding guests think of this? Now, a really nice barn, they're going to be fine with. You can actually have a slatted floor barn and you can keep them spotlessly clean. But they the problem is if they stay in there too long, they get lame. And there's also an interaction with how you feed them when they're in there. But the outcome would be the lameness measure. But I'm also getting really more and more interested in the uh, regenerative agriculture. As I've learned how the grazing animal, and that's going to include sheep, goats, uh, uh, bison, any of these grazing animals, uh, if they're used correctly, they can improve the land. They can sequester carbon if you do the grazing right. And there's a lot of small places in the U.S. that are pioneering this. They write it up in a magazine called the Grass Stockman Grass Farmer, which which is uh, hard to find online, unfortunately. Okay. But they're doing some innovative things, which I think in the future will become mainstream, just like the probiotics uh, became mainstream for chickens. Yeah, and I love the wedding party test for your barn. That's something very simple that the farmers can think of. You're holding a wedding tomorrow in your barn. Are you sure that the guests are going to be happy with what they find there? That's brilliant. Well, I don't think I'm going to hold the wedding in the barn. I oh, okay. Show them the barn. And I don't think filthy, dirty cattle laying around in gross slop is something that's going to impress you know people. But on this mob grazing, what you do is you mimic the way they used to graze. You know, mm -hmm. there were predators around, so it, they bunch in tight. And they'd mow the grass, not rip it out by the roots, but mow the grass, eat all the weeds, don't cherry pick it. And then and then every day you move them. Every day you move them. So you and you move the electric fence. It's a portable electric fence. You may need portable water too. And and you've so this brings in handling. You've got to have good handling. And cattle will get trained to move. And one good news is cattle handling's actually gotten better. There's been a lot of emphasis on low stress handling, lots of people teaching it. When I first started out, um, it was yelling and screaming and hitting and electric prodders and, and uh, many, many people have improved on that. That's the bright spot uh, right now. And you're gonna need really good low stress handling methods um, in order to do this rotational grazing. And once you get it down, yeah, it's work to move them every day. But if you get the cattle trained, they're easy to move and trained mm. fences. Looking at some of your videos, one of the things that cattle uh, are obviously that one of their primal fears is the fear of falling. So that is an important thing. You always stress in barns and moving and the flooring has to be. You have to have non-slip floor for, for a non-slip floor for handling cattle on. And the problem you've got with flooring is it wears out slowly. And unless you're measuring slips and falls, then you may not realize how much the floor is deteriorated. So you also can use um, uh, objective scoring or an outcome-based outcome measures for handling. How many slips and falls did I have? The other thing is vocalization and mooing. When you put them in a restraint device, they should not be vocalizing. When you catch them in a restraint, catch them in a head restraint, um, uh, put them on a single animal scale or something like that, they should not be mooing. And electric goad use, I mean, that should be almost none out on the farm. Um, and you can measure this stuff. 
and we're doing this right now in our beef quality assurance program. And they've seen improvements. There was a big study done in the US, big gigantic feed yards in Texas. And 60 or 70% of the stock people were actually doing a good job. Um, and there was still some uh, putting, bringing too many animals up at the same time, yelling and screaming at them. But the good news is there was a lot of people doing it right. And if you'd done that same survey, 20 years ago, it would have been a lot worse. Mm, but that is very, very good news. I wondered if you'd tell us what you think about people with autism having connections with animals. For instance, we have a young boy in the local school who was very distressed. Uh, he had autism, but he'd also had a, an event in his life that he was grieving over. And his special needs assistant brought him up to the farm to meet the donkeys, and it's helped him a lot. Uh, with his distress. So would you like to speak a little bit about that connection? Uh, yes, there's been a, um, uh, there's a number of individuals with autism that really relate well to animals. There's been a great interest in the US therapeutic riding, you know, very young kids saying, well, my kid did the first words on a horse. Um, and there's some um, individuals where working with animals is be the best thing they could do. And there's kind of three different ways they react, love them, scared at first and then they love them. And then there's some where there's sensory issues. They can, they, the smell or, or the other thing, maybe that donkey's gonna make a sound or that horse is gonna whinny and make a loud sound they're not expecting. Um, but for a lot of individuals that are kind of quirky and different, uh, animals are, you know, they love working with animals and we need good stock people working with animals. And stockmanship doesn't get enough credit. And there was an old study done years ago by a guy named Seabrook. And he found the confident introvert was the best stockman with the dairy cows. Confident introvert. Well, that kind of sounds like somebody with autism, possibly. And they did better with the dairy cows and sort of happy Charlie, you know, yak, 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 you know, kind of guy. The professionalism of stockmanship needs to be increased. They need to be paid more. I had a student who loved working in the farrowing house with baby piglets and the sows. And the only reason she quit, she kind of said to me, well, I don't want to live in a trailer. I want to live in, in better housing. And she was saving lots of pigs. We need good stock people. And it's a skilled job and it needs to be getting a lot more respect. Okay. Did you have a favorite horse or, or a cow, but it's possibly a horse when you were growing up in your childhood? Well, I, most of my work with animals got started as a teenager. Okay. So I'm real horses and cattle, both it started as a teenager, but I did one time at one of our big feed yards in Arizona. When I first started, I had two pet steers in one of the pens and I'd come, I'd come back a month later and they'd run up to me. I, they, they were in pen A12 and pen A11. So I called them A12 and A11 blackies. Uh, and I'd, the way I got to know them is I had to. Do, I was working for our state farm magazine. I was young in my twenties then, and I had to get some close-up pictures of cattle. And I I sat in the pens and well, for like a whole afternoon getting these pictures, and that's how I made friends with them. Uh, never will forget those, and I wrote about them in my book, uh, Thinking in Pictures. Oh, lovely, lovely. Yes, you and you speak about the flight zone for the cattle and not approaching them. When you reach their flight zone, that's what sort of freaks them out. I describe the flight zone in a lot of my publications. I have a little publication called Temple Grandin's Guide to Working with Farm Animals. Uh, it is available electronically. 
And it also has a lot of simple, small uh, cattle handling facilities in it. Um, the way the flight zone works is you kind of imagine you have two zones around an animal. If he's completely tame, halter broke or head collar broke, there's no flight zone at all. You can touch that animal. And your horse would be no flight zone. But most cattle have some flight zone. So let's say if I walk out into the field, the cattle will turn and look at me when I get to be a certain distance. Now, that's not the flight zone. That's the zone where they're aware that I'm there. Now, people teaching low stress handling have a lot of different names for this. Pressure zone, cattle want to see you zone, zone of influence, zone of awareness. Uh, but this is the zone where they're aware of your presence and they'll turn and look at you. Now, if you walk up a bit closer and they start to move away, that's the edge of the flight zone. So there's kind of two zones. And when you're moving cattle, if you're driving them, they start to go back off the flight zone. Now, if you have those animals in a single file race, let's say uh, to get vaccinated or maybe at the meat plant, um, big mistake that people make is they'll stand next to the race deep in the flight zone and the animal cannot move away and he's going to get agitated. And what the person needs to do in that situation is to back up and get out of the flight zone. Another thing we need to be doing in races is, is get rid of distractions, vehicles parked along it, coats on fences, reflections, chains hanging down, little things we don't notice, they tend to notice. Now, if you were in a dairy and there was always a coat on a fence, well, they'd get used to walking by it because the cattle are in there every day. But in the vaccinating shoot, they're not in there every day. So you want to get rid of the little distractions and uh, the other big mistake people make when they're handling an animal in a race uh, is to stand in front of its head and poke it on the butt with some with a driving aid to get it to move. That doesn't work. You're telling it to go forward and back at the same time. You've got to stand behind the point of balance at the shoulder to get it forward. Another very super clever way to get animals to move forward in a race, in a single file race, is to quickly walk back by them in the opposite direction. Sounds really counterintuitive, but it works. You quickly walk back by them in the opposite direction of desired movement. And when you pass that shoulder, they'll go forward. It works. Oh, great advice. Do you think if cows had a voice or if bovines had a voice and they could say one thing to humans, what would they like to tell us? Well, animals um, don't like to be frightened. You know, fear is um, uh, when cattle get agitated when you handle them, that's due to fear. And fear is a proper scientific word. Now, when you separate the cow from the calf, that's separation distress. Separation distress and fear during handling are actually two different emotional systems in the brain. Really, they're, they're not exactly the same thing. Now, the other thing is, is uh, not having discomfort. You know, if they're filthy, dirty, if they're lame, that's um, long-term discomfort. And people that are work scientists that are working in animal welfare now, I say it's not enough just to prevent suffering. Okay, if I monitor for dirtiness and lameness, that prevents suffering. But is that animal really having a good time? Does it have a life worth living? Now, when I look back at the cattle in the Arizona feed yards, and I go back and I look at my old photos, and now they've been doing Zoom conferences, so I get to look at my slides in more detail, and I'm going, every single picture I got the Arizona feed yards, we got half as many cattle in the pens. And this is something that, oh, since the 70s, because these are pictures from the 70s, it has slowly gotten more cattle in the pens. And there's a point where that's made it dirtier. 
And when I look back at the living conditions for the cattle, not the handling, the handling was atrocious in the 70s, living conditions, both in the feed yards and the ranches, they had decent living conditions. Do you think cows get cold? Yes, cows can get cold. Now, cows are a ruminant. So their thermal neutral zone is much lower than it is for people. Now, the thing that can really kill cattle, now this may not be a problem in Ireland, but it's a problem here, is an ice storm. That is some of the most dangerous weather because it wets the hair and loses the insulation. But I've been up to North Dakota when it was 20 degrees below zero and the cattle had a thick, heavy winter coat. And it was very dry, cold. They had a little crust of ice on top. They were fine. They were just fine. But those animals have to be acclimatized and have time to grow that thick, heavy coat and also up their thyroid hormone and, and, um, and get cold acclimatized. If I brought cattle from Florida, which is the Southern US, and I put them in North Dakota in the middle of winter, slick coats, oh, those cattle would be cold, they'd be in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. We have two Scottish Galloway cattle and a Highland cow. So they have very long, thick coats. And they're great and they can stay out all year. So they don't have to go inside for the winter. They're fine. But I think the main reason you're putting cattle inside in the winter is so they don't wreck the ground. True, true. Because true. cattle are heavy duty outdoor animals and um, they can do just fine outside. But the pastures are boggy and you don't want to wreck the pastures. That's the reason for putting them in the barns, because in New Zealand, they don't put them in barns. New Zealand's a little bit drier. And a mistake that I've seen in New Zealand is you've got some people um, starting to build indoor dairies there. And I said to them, why are you copying uh, a dairy that comes from a place that is cold, that has extremely cold weather? I don't see any reason for you to copy that. Now they're doing it because it's modern, but actually I think it's a mistake because uh, New Zealand is, is, has the island country has um, year round grazing. Why are you putting them in a building that would work well in the Northern US? Like right now we have a cold wave and it's very, very, very cold here. And it's even colder in the Northern US. No, why? There's no reason to copy that. I know you've got a whole day ahead of you and we're so honoured to have your time. Thank you so much for getting up early in the day to talk to us. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the oh, listeners I think, in Ireland? I think, we, well, you know, you're advertising, you know, your grass-fed beef. Um, you see, the other thing that's a problem right now, you've got great demand. And so then there's the urge to overcrowd and stuff. But that could get you into a pile of trouble, get you into a big pile of trouble. We've got to start, you know, we've got to give animals a good life and then let's show people how we can use them to improve land. Um, The thing I have learned about some of the mob grazing and some of the crop rotation stuff, it's very local specific. I went to a very influential seminar they had in in North Dakota uh, several years ago. And the million dollar question is, if you're doing the crop rotation is what mix of seeds do you put in the cedar? That's the million dollar question. And it's very, very local. That's something I've learned about it. And if you're going to graze it, you've got to do it right because you make animals sick if you do it wrong. You know, I would recommend if you're going to try this, you go in it slowly and make sure you learn how to do it carefully. Mm -hmm. So specific to the different places. Yes, it's very specific to the different places. 
And, and uh, one of the problems that happened years ago when they first started the rotational grazing, too many wild claims were made for it. They overstocked stuff. They weren't moving them enough. Uh, you know, now, years later, you know, they've learned. We have to look at what is truly sustainable in the long term. Because there's a lot of things you can do with monoculture of crops where in the short term it works great, but then you hurt the soil. What's going to be in the long term? We need to be using livestock in a way where it's going to work in the long term, not just the short term. That is something that's truly sustainable, where it's regenerative in the long term. That's what we have to do. Well, look, it was fascinating talking to you and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and a very appropriate day as today is the first day of the Chinese calendar in the year of the ox. Professor Temple Grandin is speaking up for bovines and some great advice and suggestions. So thank you so, so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I guess I'm going to sign off. I really liked um, being on your webinar. Thank you for listening to the Nature Magic podcast. Coming up on Nature Magic, keynote speaker David Sabell on the spiritual connection that children have with nature and YouTube superstar horse trainer Warwick Schiller on training horses with telepathy. Breaking news from Borough Nature Sanctuary. Amelia the Juliana Pig is now live on Zoom and can pop in to liven up your meeting or family get together for only 10 euros. She was very excited to get her first booking this week a school in New York. All proceeds go to animal welfare and upkeep. Please subscribe, rate us and share with your friends to help with our reach. To be in with a chance for the monthly draw to win a beautiful haul of handmade Irish gifts, please review the podcast, take a screenshot and email to mary at boroughnaturesanctuary.ie. Check out the show notes for links and book recommendations.